to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a PCUSA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children like me and youth and adults at ndpc.org. You can also follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come join us in person. Okay, that's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. Our scripture this morning is from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. Now when the human one comes in his majesty and all his angels are with him, he will sit on his majestic throne. All the nations will be gathered in front of him. He will separate them from each other just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right side, but the goats he will put on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who will receive good things from my father. Inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you before the world began. I was hungry and you gave me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothes to wear. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then those who are righteous will reply to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and give you clothes to wear? When did, you, when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Then the king will reply to them, I assure you that when you have done it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you have done it for me. Then he will say to those on his left, get away from me, you who will receive terrible things. Go into the unending fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you didn't give me food to eat. I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me. I was naked and you didn't give me clothes to wear. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't do anything to help you? Then he will answer, I assure you, that you haven't done it, when you haven't done it for one of the least of these, you haven't done it for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous ones will go into eternal life. The word of the Lord. Just before the pandemic, in December of 2019, which I think was in our lifetime, although I'm not certain about that. 
In December of 2019, this congregation's elders voted to become a Matthew 25 church. It's a designation that has been created by our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, and I'll say what it means in just a second. Many of you undoubtedly recognize that Matthew 25 is shorthand for this section that Chet just read from Matthew's Gospel. In this story, Jesus tells a story about the coming reign of God. And in that coming reign, faithful disciples will be recognized based on our compassion and our acts of caring. Jesus says that when you care for those among you who are hurting the most, it is, it is as though you are caring for God's own self. Now this passage and the life of service that this passage describes has been part of this congregation's DNA for a long, long time. It shouldn't come as a shock to any of you that our session signed on unanimously to be a Matthew 25 church. What is tricky, though, is figuring out exactly what it means. What does it look like for us to live into this identity? Well, according to the program, there are three things that every Matthew 25 church needs to do. Number one, build congregational vitality. Number two, dismantle structural racism. And number three, eradicate systemic poverty. That's a lot. That's a lot for any church to take on. Now, I think that there is life and energy and spirit in this congregation. Amen? Amen. I think we're a vital congregation. Our commitments to ending homelessness and making sure there is an affordable home for every person who lives in our community, our commitment to medical debt relief and to the expansion of health care through our political advocacy through Presbyterians for Better Georgia, all that and all the other things that we do on top of that surely count on our ledger as, as addressing systemic poverty. Amen? Amen. I think we can check that box too. What about the second one? What about combating structural racism, dismantling the structures of racism? How do we do that? That is not so easy to figure out, is it? Well, one thing I know that we can do and that we have done is learn. All of us can learn about how race continues to function as an organizing principle in our lives. Learning is important, especially for those of us who call ourselves white. Many of us have lived a long time on this earth with our race as an invisible part of our lives. 
because our culture treats whiteness as normal. Last summer, a number of you engaged in the 21-day anti-racism challenge, 21 daily encounters with an article or a video or a movie that shows some aspect of how racism works. Last fall, Pastors Nibs Stroop and Paul Smith engaged us in a conversation about what their anti-racism work has looked like in their 80-plus years of combined ministry. We've welcomed Dr. Jen Harvey to this pulpit to talk about anti-racist parenting. We've had Reverend Paul Roberts here to engage us all in a conversation about race and racism. We've lamented in worship over the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, for sure. All this learning and our deepening awareness of racism can be, I would say, unsettling. Racial awareness can be apocalyptic in the sense that an apocalypse is an unveiling of our eyes. Once we see how racism gets carved into our institutions and into our communities, even into the land itself, we never see the world the same way again. And racism hasn't just altered the world around us and outside of us, it often disfigures the world within us. Race gets inside of us and it can skew our values and it can skew our judgment. It can change the way we see each other and the way we see ourselves. Now, I have had what I consider to be the good fortune of a lot of amazing opportunities in my life to learn about race. And one of the many things that I can say that I have learned as a white person, a lot of things I could say, but one of the things that I would say this morning is that learning about race feels crappy. Can I say that word in church? Because it does. It feels crappy to learn about what race is and what it does in our lives. You're better off for knowing, for sure, but that knowing does not make you feel better. It can be hard, it can feel impossible to imagine how we might ever rid the effects of racism from the world around us. And it might even be harder to imagine how to eliminate racialized thinking and judging from our own consciences. So I know as a white person, the feeling of frustration when we get confronted by the hard truth of racism. And I also know that if you follow that frustration where it wants to lead you, you will be tempted to deny the truth about race and racism, what it was and what it is. So I've been paying attention, and maybe you have too, over these last months 
to the cultural backlash, mostly from white folk, about what's being called critical race theory. Critical race theory has become a term that's used to describe any and every effort being made to bring attention and care to the role of race in our common life. Critical race theory is blamed for everything from, from Black Lives Matter protests to racial sensitivity or diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in schools and businesses. It's blamed for the taking down of statues like Christopher Columbus and Robert E. Lee. It's all the fault, critics say, of critical race theory. So now in school boards and state legislatures across our country, people are gathering to try and ban any mention of race and racism. What the white people who are doing this seem to object to most is that being implicated in racism makes them uncomfortable. So these efforts to ban critical race theory have become the latest in a long line of expressions of white supremacy. White people fighting to try and pull the veil back over our eyes. White people fighting to preserve white ignorance and also white power. Now, you're going to hear a lot more about this, I'm quite sure, as we move into the next Georgia legislative session. Get ready, Becky. But this morning, I want you to know what critical race theory actually is. Because it's wonderful. It's something that I got a chance to start wrestling with 20 years ago as a student at Union Theological Seminary and have been engaging with it ever since. Critical race theory is powerful and it is a useful tool for white majority congregations that are engaged in combating systemic racism. So give me just a few more minutes and I want to describe critical race theory to you. And I think you will see, not only is this theory not something that we need to be afraid of, but that it harmonizes in remarkable ways with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is critical race theory? It is a way of thinking about the world. That's what theories are, right? They're ways of thinking about things. Critical race theory emerged from legal studies in the 1970s and the 1980s when folks were trying to figure out why, after so many legal victories in the civil rights movement, why was racism not going away? Why were outcomes not changing for black folks? Those were the questions being asked by one of the originators of critical race theory, this man, law professor Derek Bell. 
we got to know Derek Bell just a little bit, Beth especially, as he circled around the congregation of the First Presbyterian Church in Brooklyn. He loved listening to gospel music, and their choir sang great gospel music. So Bell had been a civil rights lawyer, a colleague of Thurgood Marshall. But by the 70s and 80s, when he was teaching at Harvard Law School, Derek Bell started asking provocative questions like, was Brown versus Board of Education that great decision that desegregated schools? Was that decision bad for black children? Bell couldn't help but notice that every time black folks would experience progress, that racism would come roaring back with a vengeance. What happened here in the South, right? When schools were desegregated, what happened? White folks went away, right? They ran away. We, we moved out into our own communities and we created our own private schools, most of them Christian schools. They still dot the, the landscape of the Atlanta suburbs. In fact, our public schools across the country are as segregated now as they were in the 1970s. Even after the laws were changed, even after legal segregation was outlawed, black folks and white folks still experience profoundly unequal outcomes. Derek Bell began to say that justice can never be colorblind. I wasn't saying that Brown versus Board of Education was wrong. He just wanted you to see what he saw which is that racism is insidious. Nothing gets disentangled from race in our country. No legal decision, no act of Congress or state house, no tax policy, no healthcare policy or housing policy, no sanctuary and no sermon can claim to be neutral or unbiased. Racism is in it. So unless we intentionally invite the lens of race to explore the effects of what we say and what we do, we are no better than those folks who are trying to pull the veil back over their eyes. There is a gap between America's ideals about justice and righteousness and the reality of the black experience. Critical race theory wants to focus your eyes on that gap. Now, I could say a lot more things about critical race theory, and I hope you all will do your own reading and learning. But I want to say one more thing about it. One more way, a simple way, I think, to think about critical race theory. Critical race theory is a centering of black people's experiences and thoughts and words. 
It aspires to a world in which the centering of whiteness is no longer permissible. I think this image tells this story in a different way. This picture is taken, I believe, this week. It's from the Huntington Museum of Art in Los Angeles. And in that museum for many years has hung this portrait on the left. It's one of the more famous portraits in the Western art tradition. It's Thomas Gainsborough's Blue Boy. It's been in the collection of this wealthy family for 100 years and everything about this picture represents the centering of whiteness, right? The, the gentility, the soft, warm, white skin, the fine, shiny blue fabric that this young man of privilege wears with pride, even the setting in this art gallery, in this space reserved for fine culture and good taste. So it turns out that the Huntington Art Museum has just hung up another portrait. This second portrait, called Portrait of a Young Gentleman, is also a portrait of a young man. It's the same size as the blue boy. The two young men are actually in the same pose, the hand jauntily placed on the left hip. The portraits are in the same room. They stare across the room at each other. But this second portrait, the subject is black, and the artist is black artist Kahinde Wiley. Now, Wiley's portrait hasn't replaced Gainsborough's. They're both still there in the gallery, but they look at each other now from across the room. The presence of the second portrait changes everything about the first. It changes the room itself. Whiteness is decentered. And blackness has a place of honor. I do think it is a sacred calling to address structural racism and to try to dismantle it. In this sacred calling, the experiences and the wisdom and the insights of black people are essential. Not just so that we white folks can call ourselves diverse and inclusive. Black lives and black voices are essential because there is something unique about black truth. And black truth is essential if there is to be truth at all. Now, apparently, some white people don't like 
to hear this. They say, why should black perspectives be favored? Why why do we do this? Why do we listen to this critical race theory? Isn't it a kind of reverse racism? Shouldn't we all be equal? Well, yes, we should all be equal. But we all know that the equality that we are intended to have, the equality of our dignity and value and worth, that is our birthright as beings who each bear the sacred image of our common creator, that equality has been effaced by the sin of racism. It turns out that when human equality gets effaced by our sin, sometimes, and I don't know, maybe you think this is unfair, sometimes God steps in and says, for crying out loud, people, for the sake of the restoration of your belovedness, I need to take sides. Which brings us back to this gospel. The harshest part of Matthew 25 is that God is not neutral. God takes sides. And God identifies with those who are suffering. So I want to ask, could it be that at this moment, when this ancient sin of white supremacy that has defaced our mutual belovedness for more than 400 years, when that sin is being called out and even exercised from our body, could it be that God is taking sides again? Critical race theory is no more offensive than Jesus. So what do you think? Do you think it's fair that God chooses to identify with those who are suffering? And then God asks the rest of us to act with care and compassion to those who suffer? Is that unfair? Don't respond too quickly. Take your time and consider it. Because by the looks of this passage, there could be an awful lot that rides on our answer. Let the church say, Amen.